Okay, well, as we continue in our study of Christology, or the person and work of Christ, we're going to spend some time this week uh, and next talking about the names and titles of Christ in the Old and New Testaments. And we'll be focusing primarily on the New. <clears throat> Today we'll look at his main title and the particular parts of it, Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll also consider him as the Son of God. Lord willing, next week Desmond will continue with a look at the title Son of Man and the Lagos or the Word and then also at the I Am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now when we talk about biblical names, we need to understand first the significance of how names are used in the Bible. As in all things, we should consider first the relation of names to the person of God. Specifically, we need to understand that we serve a God who names himself. He does not invite us to name him, and we have no right to name him. He is who he is, and he tells us who he is. And one of the ways that he reveals who he is to us is by the names that he applies to himself. That is why the names and titles of Christ from the Old and New Testaments are so crucial for us to understand who he is. The Old Testament begins not with an explanation or defense of God's existence, but with the simple declaration of his being and his work. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Likewise, the New Testament begins simply by declaring who Jesus is. Matthew, or let me say first Mark, perhaps the first gospel, starts with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Matthew begins his gospel and the New Testament this way. It says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here Jesus is tied to the great patriarch of the Hebrews and to the great king of Israel. And Matthew continues then with an extensive genealogy of Jesus, tracing his lineage back to the promise of the seed that was given to Abraham. Luke, in his gospel, gives a more extensive genealogy, reaching all the way back to Adam, to whom the seminal promise of the coming Messiah was given. So in Matthew and Luke, we have these long sections with these long lists of names, all leading up to the one person of, the, of supreme importance, whose name was given to him by God through the archangel is recorded in Matthew 1.21. And as Douglas Kelly states, throughout the Gospels and the Epistles, the subject of the fulfilled covenant, that is Jesus, is provided with many names given by the Spirit through the writers of the sacred text. If we understand that all Scripture is God-breathed and that the entirety of the Old and the New Testaments are divine revelation, 
then it is clear that the biblical names given to Christ are not accidental and that it is God who is in charge of the naming concerning the person of his incarnate son. And in the scriptures, names are given with deliberate purpose and correspond to the nature and function of that which is named. One theologian writes, quote, In the Bible, the name of a person or thing is not an accidental appendix or a sign of recognition, but is something that designates its nature and function or designates the nature and function of the person or thing in question, thus corresponding to it. Jesus is not called Jesus without reason. Judas is not called Judas without reason. Every person or thing is what its name implies. For this reason, the naming of a thing is never an incidental act in the Bible. It is always a decisive act. as is presupposed even when it is not expressly mentioned. Uh, And then it says, To give a thing a name is an act of lordship. So note that last phrase, to give a thing a name is an act of lordship. We see this truth from the very beginning of the Bible. Um, At each stage of creation, on each day, as God created and shaped his creation and filled his creation, he was naming things as Lord over all. He named the sky and the land, the day and the night, the sea. But as he had given dominion to man, he had Adam name the animals as part of that dominion. And man has been about the task of naming things ever since, naming plants and animals and stars and elements and everything that he identifies in creation. But no man can name the true and living God who is Lord over all. The early Greek church father, Gregory Nazianzus, rejoices in how the names attributed to Christ in the scriptures exalt his lordship as one of the Trinity who came to redeem the world. And I won't read the entirety of what he said with all the references, but listen to, uh, to what he said. For we have learned to believe in and to teach the deity of the Son from the scriptures, from their great and lofty utterances. And what utterances are these? These. God, the Word, He that was in the beginning, and with the beginning, and the beginning. As it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1.1. Then the Son is called the only begotten, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, who has made Him known. That's John 1.18. It's called the way, the truth, and the life. He's called the light of the world, the wisdom of God and the power of God, the effulgence, the impress, the image, the seal, 
He is Lord, King, He that is, the Almighty. All of these are clearly spoken of the Son with all the other passages of the same force, none of which is an afterthought or added later to the Son or the Spirit any more than to the Father Himself. For their perfection is not affected by additions. There never was a time when when he was without the word and when he was not the father or when he was not true or not wise or not powerful or devoid of life or splendor or of goodness. Again, that was Gregory uh, Nazianzus. One of the greatest and most prolific of the English Puritans was John Owen. He wrote a seven-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. Listen to what he said concerning the reason for the great variation of names used of the Redeemer in Hebrews. Quote, sometimes the writer of Hebrews calls him Jesus only, sometimes Christ, sometimes Jesus Christ, sometimes the Son, and sometimes the Son of God. And he had respect herein unto the various actions which the church of the Jews had concerning his person from the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. And he uses none of them peculiarly, but when there is a peculiar reason for it. So these terms are not used indiscriminately, but very deliberately according to what... uh, characteristics they're seeking to convey and how seeking to tie them with the Old Testament scriptures. The early church father Cyril of Jerusalem explains that it is the rich variety of the ministries flowing from the person of Christ that is why he as the one subject has so many names. The variety of names teaches us important truths about God though none of them can convey fully who he is. Another church father, Basil the Great, pointed out that every one of God's names demonstrates something that he is or something that he is not. And now as we consider in particular some of the most prominent names and titles attributed to Christ in the New Testament, we should note carefully how early it was in the life of the Christian church that Jesus of Nazareth was worshipped as God. There have been many efforts made and many theories advanced seeking to promote the idea that the belief that Jesus is God was a later development in the Christian church. These efforts ignore many significant facts. The earliest followers of Jesus were Jews and all the Christian believers in the first century, considered themselves as monotheistic as the Jews, but a profound change came in their view of Jesus. Note what Karl Barth says about the New Testament's attitude to Jesus as a whole. Quote, the attestation of this understanding of the man Jesus in the New Testament tradition calls him the Messiah of Israel, the Kyrios, the second Adam come down from heaven, 
and in a final approximation of what is meant by all of this, the Son or the Word of God. It lifts him right out of the lists of other men and as against this list, including Moses and the prophets, it places him at the side of God. Well then, let's uh, look first at the fullest name given in the scriptures uh, to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, starting with the title Lord. Now the Greek word that is translated Lord in our Bibles is Kyrios, and uh, <clears throat> here we will give several uh, lexical references so we understand the history of the usage of the word and understand what the New Testament writers meant and what they intend when they write that Jesus is Kyrios and refer to him as Lord. First, it's important to understand its use in the Greek Old Testament. Now, the Greek Old Testament uh, is called the Septuagint, uh, and this was translated from the Hebrew around 200 years or so B.C., in the Septuagint, the word kurios occurs 9,000 times, and primarily as it translates two Hebrew words. One of these words is the Hebrew Adonai, which literally means Lord or Master. In the Old Testament, the vast majority of the time, Adonai is used in reference to God. The other word for which the Septuagint uses kurios is the Hebrew proper name for God, the Tetragrammaton, or Y-H-W-H, -H, which is often pronounced Yahweh. In fact, this accounts for the overwhelming majority of the times that Kurios is used. Of those 9,000 times, 6,156 of them are used for Yahweh, and of the rest, the vast majority are used for Adonai in reference to God. <clears throat> and again, kurios, like Adonai, means Lord or Master. But this is not the meaning of Yahweh. So why was Yahweh translated into Greek by kurios and into English by Lord? And the answer is because the Jews sought to avoid using the proper name of God lest they misuse it. And they began replacing Adonai for Yahweh in both their daily life and in their worship. So when the Septuagint was being translated, they followed the same rule and made Yahweh, and where Yahweh appeared, they translated it like they translated Adonai with the Greek kurios. So again, in the overwhelming majority of times, kurios appears in the Septuagint and where Lord appears in the English Bible, it is in the place of the Hebrew proper name for God, Yahweh. The significance of this is seen when we consider that what is understood in the Hebrew text is that Yahweh is the creator and Lord of the whole universe of men. He is the Lord of life and death. And above all, he is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who entered into covenant with Israel and promised a new covenant for all nations. Where we, when we come to the New Testament, Kyrios is used 717 
times, most often in Luke and in Paul, it is one of the most frequently used words in the New Testament, occurring many times in the numerous quotations from the Old Testament, where it often replaces Yahweh as the title for God. Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament summarizes the use of kurios, saying, in the religious sphere then, kurios, or ha-kurios, is reserved for the true God. It is used regularly, some 6,156 times, for the proper name, Yahweh. Thus, kurios is best understood by looking at the original name, Yahweh. In the New International Dictionary of New Testament theology, it says, by addressing and acknowledging God as kurios, the New Testament expresses particularly his creatorship, his power revealed in history, and his just dominion over the universe, and at the same time confesses the continuity of its belief with that of the Old Testament. And the New Testament is profuse in applying curios to Jesus. New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall says, the confessional cry used in worship, curios Jesus, or Jesus is Lord, no doubt originated in the pre-Pauline Hellenistic Christian community. This confession is one of the oldest Christian Christian creeds, if not the oldest. With this call, the New Testament community submitted itself to its Lord, but at the same time, it also confessed him as ruler of the world. All powers and being in the universe must bow their knee before him. Now, while it didn't happen often during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus was sometimes called curios. At times, it may have been no more than a polite form of address as to a rabbi, but at other times, it was unmistakably far more exalted in meaning. Consider Jesus' own use of the title for himself. In Mark 2.28, he says, The Son of Man is Lord, or Kurios, of the Sabbath. And in Matthew 7.21-22, he warns that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or Kuri, Kuri, uh, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Kuri, Kuri, did we not prophesy in your name? And his answer to them is that I never knew you and they have no part in the kingdom. In these texts, this is not merely some title of respect. The context refers to Jesus' lordship over the entrance into heaven itself. Jesus' lordship was also shown in the way that he taught. He didn't follow the common practice of quoting a long list of rabbis as his authorities, and he didn't even use the prophetic phrase, thus says the Lord. Rather, the crowds recognized at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that he taught them as one having authority, by contrast, not as the scribes. That's what it says in Matthew seven twenty nine. 
in that sermon, he had said repeatedly, you have heard it said, and then counters it with, but I say to you, giving the authoritative understanding of the law. In John, he says that all of his teaching comes with the very authority of God. Of course, most people missed the full significance of these allusions and these direct claims to deity prior to his death and resurrection. But as Douglas Kelly points out, after the resurrection of Christ, his anointed witnesses constantly call him Lord or Kyrios. <clears throat> now the Holy Spirit has been poured out from on high, thereby enabling them to see the truth about the crucified one. And we see various references to this, um, <clears throat> John 16 and 1 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> the, uh, the risen Lord gave his church the great commission to take the gospel to all the world on the basis that all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. And he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, according to Hebrews 1, 3. And he's the head of the church, Ephesians 5, 23. He exercises highest power over all the visible and invisible world as the head and rule the head of all rule and authority, Colossians 2.10. By his resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God with power, Romans 1.4. He is sovereignly seated in the midst of the throne where he exercises authority over all affairs in heaven and on earth, according to Revelation 7.17. All people and angels will stand before his judgment seat at the last day. 2 Corinthians 5.10. And he now has power to grant eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. John 17.2. From that exalted throne, the Lord has poured out his Holy Spirit upon his church. And in Acts 11, um, in view of Christ's authority in granting Cornelius and his household the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Peter makes an equivalence between the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. So we see then that um, Christian believers prayed to Christ as Saul did upon his conversion and as we later see him doing uh, in 2 Corinthians 12 as he seeks healing. Um, And as we also see the first Christian martyr Stephen doing in Acts 7, 59 and 60. The Christian believers also sang praises to the Lord, the Kyrios, and they called on his name in worship, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. In Revelation chapters 5 and 7, we see that even the praises of the heavenly realm are now directed to Jesus, the Kyrios, as the enthroned Lamb. According to Peter, from his exalted position as Prince and Savior, Christ gives 
repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins as well as to the Gentiles. In Philippians 2, we read these words regarding the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. Starting in verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are countless other places that we could see how the New Testament uh, shows the exalted status of the Kyrios, our Lord Jesus Christ. But um, we need to move on then and look at the significance of the name Jesus. The first thing to say about the name Jesus is that it was a normal human name within Israel in the first century. In one major theological dictionary, the entry on the name Jesus notes that the name born by Jesus is in the first instance an expression of his humanity. When the name to be given is announced to Mary by the angel Gabriel, she is also told what he will accomplish as the promised Messiah, saying, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. When the angel later appears to Joseph and tells him that the boy's name will be Jesus. The reason for the name is also given in a very succinct statement. In Matthew one twenty one. it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the reason given shows that the important thing in the name is found in the related verb, which means to help. Here specifically, he will help his people. He will help them by saving them from their sins. The personal name is related to the older form, Yeshua, and came into general use in the 6th, century BC during the Babylonian exile. Again, one dictionary indicates that it is the oldest name containing the divine name Yahweh and means Yahweh is help or Yahweh is salvation. Jesus refers, the name Jesus refers to his divine mission of salvation that only God could accomplish. Yet it is a historical name based on that of Joshua who led God's people into the promised land. So we see that significance in that Jesus is the one who leads his people into the blessed promised land of, of heaven. Douglas Kelly concludes, hence, 
He is one of us, a true human person, yet on mission from God and conceived by God in the womb of the virgin. The meaning of this human name of the Messiah has not been contested by scholars and much less has been written on it than on the theologically laden terms such as Christ, Son of God, and Son of Man. So then let's move on then to the title, Christ. Christ was originally a title which came from the verb to anoint, and that, that term is creo, and it means the anointed one. Uh, in Greek, that's hakristos. In the Septuagint, Christ translates the Hebrew mashach or mashiach, which we understand as Messiah. We see historical examples of anointing in the Old Testament um, in several ways. In the royal anointing of Israel's kings, such as Saul in 1 Samuel 9.16, of David in 1 Samuel 16.3 and 12, of Solomon in 1 Kings 1.34. Also, with the unnamed king who is anointed by God in the Messianic Psalm uh, 45, specifically uh, verses 6 and 7, where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So beyond the king, the high priest was also anointed by oil, as seen in 1 Chronicles 29-22, as well as Leviticus 4-3. And we also see that prophets were sometimes anointed, as with the prophet Elisha in 1 Kings 19-16. Anointing had the significance of the enablement for service, By the descent of the Spirit of God, as represented by the oil being poured upon the head, it was related to one's consecration to service in the office and calling for which one was anointed and set apart. As the ongoing revelation of the Old Testament developed, we can see definite elements of a messianic longing among the people of God. Even as the people of Israel faced the increasing prophetic threats of judgment and the eventual reality of their exile by God for their sin, the messianic promises continued to be declared with increasing fullness and detail by those same prophets. Because of this, the descent of the Davidic kingship continued to be a basis of hope for the future as expressed, for example, in various psalms, such as Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, and Psalm 132. The messianic longing, specifically as connected with the promise of establishing the Davidic dynasty forever, uh, is seen in places like Isaiah 9, verses 5 and following, where this coming new ruler is described... In these lofty terms, 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and, the, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. <clears throat> of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Likewise, Micah 5 verses 1 to 3 speaks of the birth of the messianic son of David, the anointed one, and predicts that he would be born in Bethlehem. In the development of Revelation, the Messiah is characterized by lavish possession of the Spirit. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, there are three pairs of concepts which are used there to describe this state. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. We see a similar thing in Hebrews 1.9 where Christ is anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Douglas Kelly uh, sums it up this way. The messianic reign will be beyond all human kingdoms in dignity, power, and greatness. Isaiah <clears throat> 3, 5. God's power will be seen within it, Ezekiel 17.24. Its greatness will extend to the ends of the earth, Micah 5.5. 5. Through him, paradise will be regained, Isaiah 11.6-9. The afflictions of the last times will be overcome with the ascension of Messiah, Isaiah 16 and verse 4. Well, in uh, our remaining time, let's look at the title, The Son of God. In the scriptures, the phrase, the Son of God, is used to refer to a number of different people or beings. But uh, the Apostles' Creed starts with these words, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in His only Son, Jesus our Lord. But what does it mean to confess Jesus as God's only Son? What does it mean for God to have a Son? So what may seem like a simple confession can become more complex when we understand that in Scripture, Adam is called God's Son, Israel is God's Son, King Solomon is God's Son, the Israelites collectively or and individually are called God's son or sons of God. The peacemakers, we're told, shall be called sons of God. And angels can also be referred to as God's sons. So in what way is Jesus' sonship like or unlike any of these? And why should we think of him as God's only son? Well, um, unfortunately, we don't have time to answer all of those questions, but um, I would actually encourage you to, um, 
pick up a very good book by D.A. Carson called Jesus, the Son of God. It's a very helpful, um, short little book which goes into uh, very uh, good detail sifting those things out. But for now, I only have time to cover a few points helpfully outlined by Douglas Kelly. <clears throat> Gerhardus Voss, in his book, The Self-Disclosure of Jesus, shows that in Scripture the title Son of God can be used in four different ways. So he speaks of the nativistic sense um, because a creature of God owes his existence to the immediate creative activity of God. <clears throat> so we see then in Luke 3.38, Adam is called the Son of God as being fashioned by his direct creation. In the same way that Adam's son, Seth, is called the son of Adam. So the relationship of Seth to Adam is compared to the relationship of Adam to God. In Exodus 4.22, Israel is called God's son, although there's also a covenant adoption here in addition to the creational relationship. And in Malachi 2.10, the concepts of sonship, both by creation and also by covenant, are brought together. The second way that Voss speaks of is in a moral religious sense, in which context son of God can refer to man as the particular object of God's loving care, such as Israel in Exodus 4.22. In the New Testament, believers are sons of God by birth in John 1 and 3, or by adoption as in Romans 8 and Galatians 3. The third way it speaks of is in the messianic sense. The Davidic king those in the, descended from the line of David, <clears throat> is designated as the Son of God. Seen in 2 Samuel 7.14. <clears throat> and Psalms 2 and 1.10 points to the Son of God as some higher reality than a mere earthly king who reigns and then dies and passes into the dust. <clears throat> And then fourthly, the Bible speaks of the Son of God in a theological sense, as in John's prologue in John 1, verses 1 to 18, where Jesus, the Logos, is the Son of God because he is God from all eternity. He partakes of the divine nature. <clears throat> uh, in the, in the uh, epistle to the Hebrews, where the high priestly ministry of Jesus is described, these two titles are brought together, Jesus and Son of God, thus pointing to the two natures of Christ. <clears throat> now it is in these last two senses, in the messianic sense and then in the theological sense, that the New Testament affirms Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, both as very God of very God, 
and as the promised messianic Davidic king. If this title, Son of God, had only been used in one of the first two senses, Christ would not have been crucified for the blasphemy supposedly involved in his answer to the high priest at his first trial. Where in, in Matthew 26, starting in 63, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy, what further witness do we need? You have now heard the blasphemy, what is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Again, if he had just been speaking in uh, the first two senses, he would not have uh, been sentenced to death for that. Now let's um, consider quickly, if we can, the title, Son of God in the Gospels. We'll look first in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Mark 1.1 shows that Christ is the Son of God. I mentioned that earlier. He starts out saying, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And uh, Matthew 16.16 understands Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah in the sense of being the Son of God. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the synoptics, Jesus does not use the full title, Son of God, to refer to himself. Though he does say the same thing in various other ways. But in the epistles, Son of God is frequently used for Jesus. uh, Seven times in the book of Romans, six times in Hebrews, uh, 16 times in the short letter of 1 John. However, in the synoptics, other voices do refer to Jesus with the full title, Son of God. As as with the heavenly voice from the Father at his baptism in Mark 1.11 and at his transfiguration in Mark 9.7. Also, the temptations attack Christ on the assumption that he is the Son of God in Matthew 3.11 and Luke 4.41. We also see that demons recognize him as the Son of God. For instance, Mark 5.7. And the high priest questions him whether he is the Son of the Blessed One in Mark 14.61. Now in John... Jesus' divine sonship is much more prominent. In Mark, Jesus calls God Father only four times. In Matthew, 28 times. In John, Jesus speaks of God as his Father 106 times. George Eldon Ladd writes in his New Testament theology, it is obvious that Jesus' sonship is the central Christological idea in John and that he writes his gospel to make explicit what was implicit in the synoptics. The gospel is written that men may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, 
but more than the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. John 20 and 31. In John's prologue, uh, specifically uh, chapter 1, verse 14, John states this directly by saying, We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. At the outset of Jesus' ministry in John, John the Baptist confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And um, John 1.34 is where that's seen, but also John 3.16 and 18 refer to Jesus as the only begotten Son. Again, George Ladd says, Jesus' Sonship stands apart from all other sons. This is supported by the fact that Jesus never speaks of God as our Father in such a way as to place himself on the same relationship to God as his disciples. On the contrary, he sets his sons apart when he says to Mary, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God, John twenty seventeen. <clears throat> As the Son, Jesus claims to possess an exclusive knowledge of the Father. No one has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. That's in chapter 6, verse 47. As the Father knows the Son, so the Son knows the Father. That's chapter 10, verse 15. So you see um, that claim to infinite knowledge. Here, as in Matthew 11.27, the knowledge the Son has of the Father is the same direct, unmediated knowledge that the Father has of the Son. The knowledge the Son has of the Father stands in contrast to the ignorance of other men. John 17.15 And so, um, I'll just conclude then with a statement by Douglas Kelly. He says, quote, John shows that the Son has power to confer life as does the Father. That's 521. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. 526. Jesus not only mediates eternal life, but does so as one of the persons of the Godhead, John 1, 18 and 14, 6 and 7. The Christ is above all, testifies John the Baptist, for he came down from above, 331. <clears throat> A few verses later, John adds, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, verse 35. And John tells us that final judgment is given to the Son, Chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And until that day that he reigns over all, oh, until that day he reigns over all, he who exercises the highest lordship is infinitely generous in what he gives. And that is a chief characteristic from the very heart of the Trinity. For the greatest gift of the triune God is 
to give himself to us and that he has done in his son. So that's uh, what I have. Are there any questions or thoughts or comments? I know there's an awful lot of scripture references, a lot of stuff there. <clears throat> I wanted to cover as much as I could. Um, there's, there's a lot more that could be said. But are there any, any questions? No. Okay. <clears throat> well, then let us go ahead and pray. <clears throat>